Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 170 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Every episode, our production team strives to bring you stories that inspire and inform, that feed the mind, the heart, and the soul. Today's very special episode does all of that and more. We're going to take you with us to the Biden Cancer Summit in Washington, D.C., hosted by Vice President Joe Biden and Dr. Jill Biden. It is the flagship event of well over 400 summits taking place nationwide. The goal of the summit is to gather as many people as possible to work together to identify issues and solutions that can improve the cancer journey for patients, their families, and caregivers. And perhaps the most important part of the summit's mission is to maintain the level of urgency needed to accomplish this by reminding everyone of what's at stake. And they will be doing this by telling stories throughout the day. Stories of hope, resilience, persistence, dedication, and wonder. I'm thrilled to share some of these stories with you today. We've got Natalie Casterly on the ground in Washington, D.C., who will be introducing you to some incredible people. I'm Natalie Castelli, reporting live from the Biden Cancer Summit, and I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Cherie Reinecker. Cherie was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in 2012. She's a passionate advocate for people living with this disease and dedicated to raising money for multiple myeloma research. She's the author of A Pilgrimage Without End, How Cancer Healed My Broken Heart, and is now working on a second book, A Pilgrimage Towards Health, Keeping Hope Alive. She lives in Southeast Texas with her husband and daughter. Thank you for being with us today, Sherry. Thank you, Natalie, for having me. It's a pleasure. Sherry, there are so many aspects of your cancer journey that we could talk about, but for today, I would like to focus on the CAR-T cell clinical trial in which you're participating. But before we jump in, please tell us, how are you doing today? I am doing absolutely great. I have been living with this cancer for over six years, and uh, I never thought I would see a day where I would be without cancer in my body, without chemo uh, appointments to go to, and um, just walking around in my high heels today, uh, feeling good, doing yard work, cleaning house, and just hanging out with my family, that like is, a normal family. That is great to hear. Before you started the clinical trial, you went through 13 different treatments over five years. And when the 13th treatment failed, your oncologist at MD Anderson recommended a combination of four drugs, but you rejected that idea. Can you tell us a little bit about your state of mind at that point and why you thought that would be the moment to start looking into clinical trials? Yes, um, at that point, it was actually two weeks after my fundraiser, um, and I could tell that I was getting sicker again. My immune system had really taken a blow over the years, not just from the cancer, but also from the chemo at that time and radiation. And when I was told that the 13th line of treatment had failed um, and that there, at this point the option was to go from three chemotherapies to four chemos, 
um, I knew that both the chemo and the cancer were killing me. And I had heard in the previous year on a t TV show something about CAR-Ts, and that really resonated me uh, with me, a, uh, immunotherapy that used the body's own defense system to kill the cancer. And so in that moment, I said, I, I don't want to, I can't do chemo anymore, and uh, I want to really pursue this CAR-T, which at that time was not going on at the hospital that I, I was being treated at. And so how did you find the clinical trial? Was it difficult? Did you have help? Did you do the searching on your own? No, I did not. Uh, at that point, I actually had a, a very large support system on Facebook. I've been very vocal about my uh, cancer journey. I know for some people, they want to keep it private, but talking about it a lot, as she brought a lot of experts and other myeloma patients um, to me, and so I posted on Facebook that I wanted to get into CAR-T, and there were several other patients that uh, were also searching for it, and there was one particular man, uh, Brian McMahon, he created Sparks Cures. Cures. His mother died from multiple myeloma um, years earlier, and he knew of all the trials that were going on, so I reached out to him, hmm. and together we started looking for, um, for the CAR-T, which got me to Sarah Cannon. Uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. Sarah Cannon is 14 hours away from where you live. How did that distance and that time factor into your choice to pursue this clinical trial? What were your concerns about the possible impact, both to yourself but also to your family? Yeah, it was a, it was a very difficult decision. Uh, it was going to be a huge impact on my daughter, mom being away. I was going to have to be away for six weeks and then just travel back and forth trying to get in it and then all the travel once the procedure had been done. It was going to be a financial impact, but at that time the biggest impact was on me physically. I had a, a nine centimeter tumor on T12, which caused tremendous pain. I couldn't sit. I could only lay down and um, flying was out of the question because I had an extremely low immune system. System, so I couldn't be around people and I couldn't sit in the seats either. So I had a neighbor who um, who was kind enough to offer me to drive. My husband had to keep working and take care of my daughter. And um, we just packed me in the car with five pillows wrapped around me, um, three blankets on top of me because I was so cold all the time, and uh, plenty of opioids <laughs> to get me through the drive. And um, that's how we tracked back and forth. Before meeting with you, I did some research, and I looked up definitions of CAR T cells, you know, so I could have a good handle on what you'd been going through. And as you can imagine, everything was very scientific. I really prefer how you like to describe the CAR T cells, which is as Terminator, Lord of the Ring, elf cells. <laughs> and in hearing that, I always feel like I can hear the music in the background from the movie. Can you tell our listeners what exactly you mean by that and why you love those images? Yes, and the way you describe it is beautiful. What I always see is handsome Legolas with his bow and arrow shooting at the ugly orcs, uh -huh. as I call my multiple myeloma cells. Uh, it was a week before I actually got the CAR-Ts back, and I was extremely sick, lay in bed, and I watched The Lord of the Rings, and um, the elves always ended up coming out the hero, and um, I love The Lord of the Rings, and I just envisioned, uh, and the orcs are so extremely 
insidious and nasty and horrible, which is what myeloma had done not only to my body, but also to our family. And so I just saw that together. And the day of the infusion, they brought in this pure white fluid in three separate little bags. And uh, white, white light, white healing light, all that just came together. Elves are beautiful creatures. White is healing. And when I saw that going into my veins, I just envisioned the, the Legolas's going inside and every multi-myeloma cell, ugly orc, they saw, that, you know, they destroyed it. And... What has been your response to this new treatment? You told us at the beginning that you're feeling better than ever. The first week when I got it, uh, it was a very difficult treatment. Um, I ended up with pneumonia on top of it because of getting so sick from it. Um, once that week was over, I came out of a fog. Um, and from that moment on, I have just gone up incredibly uh getting my healthy life back as it had been. I've been able to walk, garden, clean house, go to the store and cook dinner and do the dishes all in one day, which I hadn't been able to do for five years. Hmm. So I feel like I'm living a normal life again. It took about three weeks to find out that there was not one single piece of evidence that there was any cancer left in my body. So I went from a woman who was sick was diagnosed 65 months earlier and had been nonstop on cancer treatments, both through infusions on a weekly basis and oral chemo and um, 13 different lines of treatment that could not eradicate the cancer. And this CAR-T did it, I believe, really in that first week when I got so sick, but at least in that first month. Shuri, you've written books, you've given interviews, you've penned articles, you're here in Washington, D.C. today. You could have chosen to keep your experience private, but you haven't. What motivates you? What's making you continue to speak to other multiple myeloma patients, but also to speak up for them? Cancer robbed an incredible amount of stuff from me, including my job. And because I was a young patient, I was not taken serious about my symptoms for months, six months prior, even a couple years back when I look back. And when I started feeling better, it was very important to me to make people aware of this cancer that I had never heard of, that likely some of the doctors that I had seen during that time had never heard of. And I thought if I can make one doctor aware of this, make one person aware of this that has the same symptoms of me, and that goes to a doctor and demands to get uh, certain tests that were denied to me so that they can be found out in a smoldering stage or stage one versus the stage three that I ended up being in, then I feel that it was worth talking about. It's been very healing to me in inspiring others. Others inspire me when I'm not feeling good. I go on Facebook and I get tons of people tell me to hang in there. So it, they've become my tribe. It's a, it's a community. And I know some people want to keep this private. For me, I, I can't imagine having done this, this journey without the support that I've gotten from so many strangers. So I will continue to fight this fight, not just for me. My daughter has been my driving force. I wanted to be there, and I brought her in this world, and she is 12 years today. She was seven when diagnosed, and she needs her mom. And I will do whatever I can to be here for her for as long as I can. 
thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon, and thank you for all of the work that you're doing for others. Thank you, Natalie. Appreciate it. We've got to take a commercial break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Amgen, Insight, Lilly Oncology, and Pharmacyclics and Janssen Biotech. I'm Natalie Castelli, reporting live today from the Biden Cancer Summit in Washington, D.C. for this special episode. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Bryce Olson. Bryce is living with metastatic prostate cancer and is an advocate for molecular testing and precision medicine. He's head of marketing for the Health and Life Sciences Group at Intel, 
and created the music project FACTS, Fighting Advanced Cancer Through Songs, to raise awareness for molecular testing and funds to accelerate cancer research. Welcome to the show, Bryce. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. I know this is radio, and our listeners cannot see what I'm seeing, but you must explain your t-shirt. Yeah, so I have this black t-shirt with a kind of a heavy, mo- a heavy metal font uh, tax treatment that says Sequence Me in white. Mm-hmm. And Sequence Me is really my call to action. It's about getting to the essence of what fuels disease at a molecular level, meaning in the DNA. What in the DNA of my cancer is causing this thing to grow? and then trying to learn from that so then I can get onto a drug that's targeted. That's called genomic sequencing. Essentially, sequence the tumor, get an answer, go on to something targeted and less toxic, toxic that's unique to you as a person. And so I like to go around and tell people, if you're running out of options as an advanced cancer patient and you need new answers, demand genomic sequencing. Just go to your doctor and say, sequence me. How much did you know about sequencing and molecular testing and precision medicine before your diagnosis? I mean, you do have a background in technology, but did you know how all of those things related to cancer treatment? Nothing. None of it. Matter of fact, I didn't even like science in high school. I'm just a business major. That's how, what I'm doing, anybody can do. Seriously. And it's really not that hard. It's first getting your head wrapped around the fact that there's other options besides the standard of care. It's not just this one-size-fits-all, everybody gets the same, you know, average-based treatment plan that you get today, you know, whether it's doctor's attempts to cut it out or to radiate it out or to poison it out with chemo. In my case with metastatic prostate cancer, they try to starve it out by taking away your hormones. Those are great, and that'll be very effective for people at early stage, but for guys like me with advanced metastatic disease, that is only going to extend your life. It will not cure you. It will not save your life. So... There's this concept, which is just, it's really as simple as this. It's genomic sequencing under, helps you understand what is fueling your disease in the DNA. Because cancer is a disease of the genome. The genome is basically the way our body works. The six billion letters that make us do what we do and what we are. There's technology and science that can take those letters and convert this into data and insights and it can tell each and every one of us what is uniquely driving our cancer. And when you understand that, it opens the door to clinical trials, to off-label use of drugs that are maybe approved for some other cancer, and it just gives you more options. It gives you more education into what's driving your disease, and it opens the door when you're running out of options. And I'd like for you to share with our listeners how you, I guess, I'm going to assume you're like this in most of your life, but at least in terms of your cancer journey, the first time you really raised your voice and took charge and ownership um, of the process. Can you tell us a little bit what had gone on? I'm glad you asked that question. So, um, you know, again, I I didn't think I was going to make it. I had metastatic disease, uh, one of the most aggressive cancers that my doctors had seen for prostate cancer, one of the most aggressive they'd seen in, in Portland, Oregon, where I'm from. And after going through and exhausting treatments like chemo, There was data that said, you know, if you pay attention to median survival stats, like my median survival was like 21 months. You know, guys who have have metastatic disease, who have progressed on chemo, meaning that the chemo is no longer containing the cancer, median survival was 21 months. And I just looked at that, and it it was super depressing. Uh, I, at that point, felt, well, 
I'm not doing anything unique. I'm following the same treatments as everybody else. So what makes me think I'm special and that I'm going to last longer? And I honestly started to lose hope. I uh, didn't think I'd see my kid get out of elementary school. And I, I kind of came to terms with my own mortality, which is a, a horrible place to land, mm -hmm. right? But I, fortunately, I work for this company, Intel, a technology company. And I learned that they, I, did, I didn't work in this group that focuses on healthcare before. I was doing other things in the company, but once I had this cancer experience, it's the only thing I wanted to do was work in healthcare. So I pushed my way into the group, and that's when I learned about genomics and precision medicine. So I got lucky, you know, in this kind of late 2014, early 2015 timeframe, I learned about it because of all the cancer centers that we were working with and other hospitals that were exploring the space. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got, like a light bulb went off for me. And I then said, well, I need to make this work for myself. So I sequenced the tumor, found out that I had what's I call like a clinically significant mutation, something that we could take action on. And, you know, the drug that I went after was in early phase one trials, but I just used this data that showed me that I had hyperactivity in this pathway, which is called a PI3 kinase pathway. That was just the pathway that was screwed up for me. Mm -hmm. And I found a drug that was a PI3K inhibitor, right? So just logically, I was a good match for that drug. And there's a whole funny story I could tell you about how I got onto the trial and, and how they their minds were blown that I actually had genomic data. Well, that's what I was um, going to say, because you just very casually said, I... You know, got my tumor sequence. Yeah. It's not like going on Amazon and placing an order. How, no, how did you do that? No. So, well, uh, now it's it's not quite like placing an order on Amazon, but today uh, many, many academic cancer centers have their own lab diagnostic test that can profile your tumor. They mm -hmm. can get to, you know, tell you, okay, we test for 300 screwed up genes in cancer, and guess what, patient, you actually have one of them, right? There, there's a bunch of cancer centers that do their own lab diagnostic tests, and then there's commercial diagnostic providers like Foundation Medicine and others that will offer it if you go to a community hospital, for example, and can't have access. So it's a lot easier today to get that type of stuff than when I did it, but I, I still was able to get a, a, an early stage lab diagnostic test from the cancer center that I went to. And when they told me and they showed me that what I had and I made that match, I just called up the clinical trial uh, for one of these drugs and I just said I want in and then they said well sorry there's no spots and I said yeah but I got genomic sequencing data I know I'm a perfect molecular match to the drug you're trying to test and they said wow no one's ever called us with that before it was like I almost had my own what's called a biomarker selection strategy for that trial like, huh. like I didn't fall into the trial I actually found the trial that I wanted because I was a great match and when I told them that they're like oh my gosh that's fascinating. We, we actually would love to have somebody like that because, correct, you are the kind of patient that ultimately will probably respond best to this drug. And uh, so I got in because of that data, and guess what? I was the last person standing on that trial. Like, everybody else ultimately failed. I lasted on it for two years because I was a perfect match. Everybody else was just randomized into it, but I picked it. And so that's why I became a really big believer in this and try to get as mm -hmm. many patients to understand that there are ways to... Crack open, crack, crack open some new doors. So the you you alluded just now to the fact that these tests are a lot more accessible now than they were when you first yes. did it. Um, what are we talking about in terms of cost? Yeah, great question. And is great this the question. kind of thing that insurance covers? Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of leading edge, bleeding edge, yeah. science, medical yeah. science. We're talking about. Yeah, here. I'm glad you asked that question. So. Um, uh, 
if you are a Medicare patient and you have advanced cancer, uh, just this, I think it was just this year, um, FDA approved these, 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 uh, these diagnostics and Medicare said they would start covering it. So Medicare will cover a number of lab diagnostic tests and commercial, uh, foundation medicines, foundation one, which is a commercial diagnostic test. If on the other hand, you have employer-based healthcare and you have a commercial payer that's paying your you know, covering you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of hit or miss. They're getting much better. Um, some are starting to cover it. Some will still say, oh, gee, you know, I'm going to need more data. It's still investigational. We'll need more data to make a clinical utility on this. And I get really frustrated about that because how are we are going to get more data unless they start covering? It's a chicken or egg thing. But um, here's a little secret for your listeners. So uh, doctors can prescribe it and, and then they... You know, once they prescribe it, then the payer has to, you know, either accept it or not. There is um, pre-authorizations that they can do. If they do a pre-authorization, sometimes that can grease the skids and get it in better. Uh, so the doctor should do a pre-authorization ahead of time. Um, if they don't and they just try to push it through and if the payer rejects it, have them push it again and then have them push it again and then have them push it again. And if that doesn't work, the big academic cancer centers, they want this data. Mm. This data is the new oil and they will figure out a way. They'll either use their grant money to cover it or they'll eat the costs or they'll code it at a different CPT code that where they can get some reimbursement and not all. So just got to push. Just demand it as a patient. Just demand it and say, you have to cover this. Yeah. That's a great tip for our listeners if right. they're having trouble accessing uh, the testing. You traveled a pretty long distance to be here today, clear across the country, yeah. from uh, the West Coast over here to the yeah. East Coast. Why was it important for you to be here today? Well, first off, I've, I've been a big fan of the Moonshot Project ever since it got announced because I just love the idea of trying to bring people together to cut through a bunch of red tape and try to accelerate cancer research. If we can get 10 years of research into five years by just being smarter, by using technology and combining uh, our ability to collaborate in ways that could maybe, you know, move the needle on this, I was really excited about it. And, you know, Joe and, and, and Joe Biden's story with their son touched me as well. Um, so, yeah, I... I those two are really, really big names, and if they can bring a, a collective gr- bunch of, group of groups of, of organizations and companies together to try to, you know, alter the course of cancer care, I, I'm in. I want to do my, my little part to this. So they asked me to come, and I was um, thrilled and honored to have been asked. So, and, and again, like, they're really big on finding new ways to try to attack this animal. Mm-hmm. and. That's what I'm all about too. I want to apply technology and science, and 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 try to make exponential leaps in this space, not just not just linear step leaps, but exponential leaps in this. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of it, I guess. Bryce, thank you so much for spending a little time with us this oh, afternoon. Thank you very much for and for, uh, uh, thank you, Natalie, for bringing me in. Thank you. We've got to take a break, but don't go away. We have more extraordinary people for you to meet. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is being recorded live at the Biden Cancer Summit in Washington, D.C. I'm Natalie Castelli, and I'm thrilled to be with you today reporting from the summit. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Celgene, ASI, and Gilead Sciences. Before we meet our next guest, let's take a listen to some of Dr. Jill Biden's remarks. Together, we are stronger. We are fiercer. We are more powerful than this disease. We can save lives. We can protect those birthdays and anniversaries and New Year's Eve kisses. We can keep our time with each other if we act now, if we start today. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of this summit. To our medical professionals and researchers, thank you for the revolutionary work that you do every single day. To the family members and the caregivers, thank you for your incredible diligence and fortitude, and to the patients and survivors, 
thank you for your courage and your hope. Joe and I are with you every step of the way because it's about time we created the kind... Joining us now is Jacqueline Smith. Jackie was diagnosed with stage three melanoma, a form of skin cancer, when she was 23 years old. Four years after her initial treatment, the cancer returned and was aggressive. Her treatment plan included surgery, radiation, and participation in a clinical trial. 10 years later, I'm happy to say she's cancer free. Until her diagnosis, Jackie had no idea that people like her, black people, could develop skin cancer. She's now dedicated to educating all people about melanoma, and in particular, black people and people of color, so that they understand that the disease does not discriminate. Jackie is currently Associate Director, Oncology Advocacy and Policy at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Thank you for being with us today, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for having me. So, until your diagnosis, you were absolutely convinced that your darker skin served as a natural, a kind of built-in sunscreen. Are that misconception and its consequences what motivate your education and advocacy work? Um, yes, I never really, skin cancer was just never on my radar. So I never even thought about whether I was protected from it. I just knew this isn't really something that we're at risk for. And so growing up, I had always learned that the risk population were uh, fair-skinned, middle-aged, Caucasian women. And I, well, especially at 23, I was the complete opposite. So I wasn't middle-aged, definitely not fair-skinned. And um, the only thing that I had in common with the high-risk population was being a female. So now, uh, after having the diagnosis and then a recurrence, I realized that a lot of my friends and family members who are of varying shades, they just didn't think they needed to wear sunscreen. And um, because skin cancer is one of the, the cancers that's largely preventable, I feel like if there's one thing you can do to cut down on your risk, why not do that? As you go out and you talk to people and you tell them that they actually are at risk of skin cancer, what kind of reactions do you get? Um, I do get the, well, melanin is a natural sun protectant, and it's, sometimes it can be a little annoying because they are friends of mine that were there through my diagnosis and surgery and treatment and radiation. So they're and, extremely resistant to yeah, the idea? They just, I, I think that because of my color, people don't, they hear it, but they don't hear it. And because it's melanoma, maybe they don't instantly make the connection with skin cancer. Um, you know, I've had people who say, oh, but you had breast cancer, right? And I'm like, but you know I didn't have breast cancer. So uh, across the board, uh, even in the medical community, I have had uh, nurses and physicians who were just shocked that, that I was diagnosed with melanoma. And one of the things I say is, okay, yeah, it's rare, true, but I do have melanocyte cells. So it's, you know, to think that it's completely impossible, um, definitely not. You were relatively young when you found this lump. Yes. And you went to two doctors who essentially said to you, don't worry about it. But you kept pushing, and you insisted on seeing a third doctor. Most people would have taken that advice, the good news, the better news, and kept on moving. But you didn't. What kept pushing you? What was it that made you say, no, I don't think this is right? Um, 
Well, just to go back a little too, it was my senior year in college, so it took over two years for me to get diagnosed. So I was 21 when I first noticed this lump. And um, at that age and that stage in life, I was ready to believe there was nothing wrong. So, um, but having a lump that's firm, and it was in my bikini line. So it was a weird location, and I knew it wasn't an ingrown hair follicle. So I just knew something's not right. And as much as I wanted to believe the doctor at my university and others, I just knew something was wrong. And what really made me go to get a, my, the final uh, opinion was I went with my mother for her mammogram. And they had one of the fake breasts, and they had this is what a, a malignant lump feels like, and this is something that's usually benign. And I remember feeling those two lumps. And the radiology technician said, if you have a lump that's firm, unmoving, and painless, there's a high chance it's a malignancy. And mine was firm, unmoving, and <laughs> painless. And so it, that stuck with me, and that's when I made an appointment again and said, okay, went to a different doctor, and he sent me right to a surgical oncologist. And um, seeing surgical oncologists on a referral even at my age, I knew this, okay, this is, this is serious. And, and I remember him, he, he kind of gave me a look when I questioned him about it. And he said, but, you know, you're young, so we're just taking every precaution. I want to make sure you get to someone who can properly diagnose you. But it might be nothing because of your age. And it, it was kind of funny because I knew, uh, I remember it was Dr. Boyer. I remember, I knew he was trying to minimize his concern to make me feel better, but... Yeah, it was, it was shocking. You've said that when you had the recurrence, that that was a turning point in your life. How was that experience different from the initial diagnosis? What changed within you at that point? For one, the surgeon who biopsied that lump the second time, um, he told me, you know, you, you need to see a specialist. You need to find someone who sees this frequently so that you can have the best prognosis. Um, and my primary care provider looked me in the eye, and it was December 21st, I'll never forget it, and he said, it will be a miracle if you survive another five years. And I knew I wanted to survive more than five years. So that's what made me really mobilized. I remember telling my parents, family conference, because they were in denial. My dad wouldn't eat. He would just sigh all day long. My mother wouldn't let anyone say the word cancer around mm. her. She was residing in a parallel universe. And I told them, look, we really need to find the best center and the best physicians so that I can be here. And I was just determined to do whatever was in my power to make sure I had the best opportunities to survive. When did you begin your advocacy work? Was it sort of informal at first? You're talking about, you mentioned talking to your friends and others. When did that part of your life begin? Interestingly, it was my surgeon at Moffitt Cancer Center, um, Dr. Sondak. Um, um, it was actually the first day I started interferon, so I had to give myself my first injection. 
and he'd asked me to speak at an event, and I remember it was for the Delta Sigma Theta sorority. Okay, a sorority. Okay. Yeah, and so it was a black sorority, historically black sorority, and um, they were having an event, and he wanted me to come and kind of be the face for melanoma in the community, but I was too sick from the first treatment to, to go. And then he called me back to come into the hospital to um, speak at an event for the Melanoma Research Foundation. And um, I spoke at that event, and they asked me to come in. And, and I, for school, I do a, I've done a lot of policy work and policy research. So I connected with the Melanoma Research Foundation, and that really was what spearheaded my evolution as a patient advocate. So if it weren't for Dr. Sondag sending me there, I don't know that I ever would have. But um, yeah, I've been, been very active ever since, and, and I love it. And I, I love seeing the progress we make. We're just about out of time. You've come down here to Washington today. What is the message that you have for the people attending the Biden Cancer Summit? And what is the message that you have for our listeners? Um, I think this is an invigorating time in the field of oncology from someone who works in this field and also someone who survives and lives in this space. Um, I was diagnosed at a time where cancer was seen really almost exclusively as a terminal condition. You know, I remember family friends looking at me and you just see the pity and the sadness when they hear you have cancer. And now I've lived long enough to see cancer transitioning from terminal condition to something that's considered chronic and we're even hearing the word cure more and more. And so for everyone listening, I want everyone to remember that cancer is not the end of the road, that we are living longer with cancer, we're living better quality of lives with cancer, and even though you might have to redefine your sense of normal many times throughout your cancer journey, we're here and we're not just surviving, we're thriving. Thank you so much for coming out today, for being here, for making some time for our show, and for educating people about melanoma and persisting in educating them, even if yes. they don't want to hear what you're saying. That's right, I will not stop. Use your sunscreen. <laughs> this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and this episode is brought to you in part by Agios, Helsin, and Jensen Oncology. We'll be right back after a short commercial break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, 
visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's episode is brought to you in part by Pharma, Tayo Oncology, and Takeda Oncology. I'm Natalie Castelli, reporting live from the Biden Cancer Summit in Washington, D.C., And it's my pleasure to bring to you today some stories of wonder, resilience, and inspiration that have been part of today's summit. We are now joined by singer, actor, dancer, tapper, and motivational speaker, Evan Ruggiero. Earlier this year, he was recognized for his breakout performance in the off-Broadway rock musical Bastard Jones with both a Clive Barnes Award and a Drama Desk Award nomination. Evan was five when he started dancing. He took up tap dancing when he was six the next year, and he joined a professional dance company when he was ten. He was a sophomore at Montclair State University, majoring in musical theater, when he was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, a rare bone cancer in the right leg. He underwent ten surgeries, but ultimately was left with no choice but to amputate the leg in order to stop the cancer and save his life. He later underwent 16 months of chemotherapy. But Evan vowed that he would dance again, and two days after receiving his peg leg, Evan was back tapping. Welcome to the show, Evan. Thank you so much. So, my understanding Mm -hmm. is that you are literally reinventing (laughs) tap dancing. I am trying to. That you have a whole other technique you created for yourself, and that you generate these different sounds and different Mm -hmm. rhythms. Mm -hmm. How did you teach yourself how to tap again? Because you were dancing at a very high level. Right. Well, I play a lot of different instruments, and tap dancers will always call themselves musicians. And drums being one of the instruments that I play, I really treat the peg leg um, 
not only as an extension of my body, but as its own musical instrument. So I look at it and I say, okay, what lower end sounds can I get out of the leg? And how can I marry that to my left foot with these higher pitch sounds? And so when you put the two together, you're really almost creating your own drum set on the floor with your feet or my peg leg and my left foot. So I really took a new approach. Well, not, I don't want to say a new approach. You know, tap dancers have always been, you know, heavily um, uh, married to drummers. Uh, but um, really a different approach um, as an artist and having to recreate this. You talked about different people who've inspired you. Mm -hmm. um, there was a video that you saw with a double amputee who was driving stick shift. Yeah. And um, in particular, you talked about a tap legend, Clayton Pegleg Bates. Yes. Can you talk about how who they were and how they motivated yeah, yeah. you? Um, well, I heard of Pegleg Bates when I was 16 years old. My tap teacher um, was showing a video of all the great tap dancers of the past, and so it was. And you were 16 when you I saw it. I was 16. That? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is before cancer. Uh, two legs, <laughs> and it was like Gregory Hines and uh, Tip Tap and Toe and the Nicholas Brothers, Jimmy Slide, and one of those guys was Peg Leg Bates, and you know all of my friends and I all just thought, wow, like he's amazing. Look at him, he's tap dancing with one leg. He's better than us with two legs, and. You know, then I was diagnosed with cancer, and my doctor told me about my amputation, and I said to him, you know what, if Peg Leg Bates can do it, so can I. And I told him, I, would prom I promised him that I would tap dance again, and he shook my hand, he vowed to save my life, and he said, I'll be there at your first performance. Now, it took him about six years to finally come to one of my shows, and it was because, so I was actually the surprise entertainment for an event that was honoring him. So I got out there and I was like, oh, hey, <laughs> nice to see you. It's, it's been six years. Here Welcome. I am. Here. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, so, so Peg Lake Bates was a, a huge role model and inspiration to me. I met a lot of his friends after I started to tap dance again, and they were able to pass on stories of Peg Lake wow. and share footage with me. Um, another, another guy that I met along the way, when I first uh, found out about my amputation, you know, I just wanted to keep that normalcy in my life and I wanted to continue the everyday activities and my everyday way of living and uh, I drive stick shift and at the time I had um, uh, got this car and it was manual transmission and um, I immediately I uh, just you know immediately thought well am I still going to be able to drive my car missing a leg what can I do and so I you know get on YouTube and I uh, you know, I look up uh, amputee driving stick shift, and I find a guy who, um, he was a bilateral amputee, so he was missing both of his legs above the knee, so same as me, mm -hmm. above, uh, he, uh, you know, uh, being an above knee amputee, and he was operating the clutch, the brake, and the gas pedal completely normally, um, no modifications whatsoever, and I thought, okay, another time where I said, okay, if he can do it with with two prosthetic legs, I can do it with one prosthetic leg. And I said to my doctor, okay, I, you know, I saw this guy driving stick shift. And 
He was like, you can't drive stick shift. No, you know, missing a lift. Is it the same doctor? It's actually a different doctor. (laughs) So I have a very large team of doctors. You know, the one, uh, my orthopedic surgeon was always like, yes, you can. (laughs) And my oncologist was like, you can't do that. Get out of here. I like to think that he was like that with me because he was like, all right, let's just see him. Because he'll find a way how to do it. Um... But, but, you know, on the whole scientific side of it, he was like, you know, it's really not safe, and, you know, you don't have those um, uh, uh, proprioceptive nerves, and you can't feel the pedal, and I said, you watch me. You drove from New York to D.C. today. Mm-hmm. In traffic. What, <laughs> <laughs> what is the message that you wanted to share with the folks who attended the conference today here at the Biden Cancer Summit? What is it that you would like to share with our listeners who yeah. are hearing your story? Well, I, I, I want to share my, my joy and my, <laughs> my joy and my positivity about, about life. Um, you know, we all get knocked down with something, and you know, the craziest story I have was, you know, when I was doing this dance with my peg leg and, and I fell down on stage in front of five thousand people. <laughs> And you know, it, it it was it was that message that I didn't mean it, you know, to to relate to my life. But you know, nonchalantly, it was just, hey, I mean, you know, I stood back up. I said, well, when we fall down, we get back up. And everyone here at the Biden Cancer Summit has been affected by cancer. And you can see everyone in this room who has been knocked down at some point. And today to see them all stand up and to rejoice and to be here together is an incredible thing. And I think that um, Vice President Biden and Dr. Jill Biden have done a tremendous job by bringing all of us here. Evan, thank you so much for spending some time with us, for sharing your story. And uh, for being that positive force out there. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> and keep great. dancing. I will. I will. I'm Kim Tebaldo, your host and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. It's been my pleasure to have you join us today for this very special episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer. It is my greatest hope that you feel as inspired and invigorated as I do after hearing these amazing stories. For more information about the Biden Cancer Summit, please visit bidencancer.org summit. As mentioned earlier in the show, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support for people with all cancers at any stage of disease and for their family members and loved ones, all free of charge. For information about our programs, visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org or call our helpline at 888-793-9355. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, Live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support